Okay, we're going to go ahead and read the uh, 86th Psalm before we get going into our sermon today. This is a prayer of David. Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cried you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Isn't David just unbelievable? Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, nor any are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, the proud have risen against me, and a mob of violent men has sought my life, and have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. O turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Okay, today is uh, our sermon is from Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. It's called The Blessing Upon Judah. And there is some real great stuff about Jesus Christ in these verses. I want you to know that in advance. Before I read our uh, verses, I want to also mention, in case you didn't see the last sermon and uh, you wonder where I'm going with this, uh, E.W. Bullinger's work uh, I've relied on for him in many of my sermons, many of his books. Uh, this particular book he wrote is called um, The Witness of the Stars, and he shows how the zodiac, not the pagan zodiac, but the zodiac that God put in place reveals Jesus Christ. So if you think that this is astrology, it's not, and I'll explain that as we go through here. It's just simply God revealing himself in another way for our benefit. So um, uh, I just want you to not think anything awry, in other words. If you click on YouTube and you, you see me talking about the stars, I justify why I say the things I do in the previous sermon, and I will in each sermon. Um, another thing is somebody asked me, I told you, uh, the people on YouTube, that uh, I post my sermons not only on YouTube, but I post them in written format on the same time in the same day that I post the, the video. And they want to know where can I get that written format so I can see it as I'm watching the sermon. In case you say something I don't understand, I can see it in writing. What you would do is go to the website, superiorword.org, go to writings, it's one of the top uh, tabs you click on, and then go to Torah, written, Genesis sermons, and you'll be able to find any sermon that I've done. Everything that I do, word for word, is given to you. It's not copyright. You can copy it. You can do your own sermons at your own church if that's what you want to do. Whatever. It's free to the world. The Lord has blessed me with these things, and I want the world to have them. So that's where you go. Writings, Torah, written, and Genesis sermons. All right? So here is our uh, sermon text for today. Genesis 49, starting in the 8th verse, says, Judah... You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. 
And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. As Jacob blesses his sons, a celestial drama is being revealed, one which was placed in the heavens by God to show us the work he would accomplish through his son, Jesus. Astrology is forbidden in the Bible because it attempts to reveal our future and the choices that we should make from the creation rather than the creator. But what God has revealed in the constellations was intended to reveal Jesus and how God would conduct his affairs. And there's a world of difference between the two. For example, if we use this book, the Bible, for divination, and I know people that do that. They go into Bible codes and they try to find out stuff that isn't biblical in nature. We are misusing what God has given us. But if we use the Bible to see Jesus and his plan for the ages, then we are following what God intended for us to see. We need to pursue Jesus, whether it's through Bible codes or anything else. That is what we are to do. Text verse for today comes from uh, Psalm 76. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and sword of battle. Selah. Today we will see Jacob's blessing upon Judah, his fourth son. Through Judah will come Christ the Lord. Not only is this revealed in the Bible, but it's actually revealed in the very sky above us. And the Bible shows us how. So let's turn to that precious word again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Of three thoughts, the first is the praise of his brothers. This is verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Judah was the fourth son who was born to Jacob and the fourth son born to Leah. His birth is recorded in Genesis 29, verse 35, which says these words. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. The first part of verse 8 is intended as a play on words, just as it was at his birth. The name Judah means praise, and Jacob acknowledges that as his brothers will be the ones who praise him. In other words, as his name is, so is he. The word translated as praise is an elegant variation of the name Judah. In a delightfully palpable sentence, we lose it in the translation Jacob says these words in Hebrew, Yehuda, ata yoducha achecha. The Bible uses the same word for praise here, numerous times elsewhere in Scripture, such as this one from the 111th Psalm. He says, Praise the Lord, I will praise, that word yoducha, the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright in the congregation. The term Jew that we know today comes directly from the name Judah. And like Jacob's words now, Paul uses the same word in a pun. There in Romans chapter 2, we read these words. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward and in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise 
is not from men, but from God. So he's making a pun on the word praise in the name of Judah, or the term Jew. Jacob's note in this prophecy is that God was praised for him at his birth. God was praised by him, such as in the psalm that I cited, and God is praised in him because Jesus descends from the tribe of Judah. And because of this, his brothers shall, and indeed do, praise him. Yehuda, ata yoducha achecha. Isn't that a beautiful sound? It's this little bit of joy from the Hebrew. But already at the very beginning of his oracle, Jacob has placed Judah above his brothers. In this now, and for the rest of the prophecy, we can be certain that the words are not pronounced based on Jacob's exceptional love for his son Judah. That already belongs to Joseph. We know that. His advancement of Judah above his brothers, then, is a direct result of the Spirit of God and prophecy, which now rests on him. Being the first of the brothers means that he will be the first of the tribes, and this is seen with all surety throughout the rest of Scripture. Judah first began to attain ascendancy when he spoke on behalf of all of the brothers when they uh, met Joseph. Remember that? And finally, Joseph revealed himself to them. After that, Judah was selected by Jacob to go ahead of the others and to uh, point the way to Goshen. In the future, Judah will be the first tribe to break down and to march ahead of the other tribes as they carry the Ark of the Covenant in the wilderness all the way into Canaan. Once they're in the land of Canaan, Judah will repeatedly be selected as the first of the tribes to go into battle. After Joshua's death, Judah will have the first lot that was assigned to them. They will acquire it. All the land was divided among the tribes, and they'll be the first one to claim their land. It is a land which is very large, and it's very fertile. The first judge of Israel will be Othniel of the tribe of Judah. From Judah will come the great king, David. All of this is intended to teach each and every one of us a lesson. Judah means praise. It sets the example for all of us. In all things, let praise go first. If we can remember this simple lesson, which has been revealed to us in these many patterns concerning Judah, we will always, always, always succeed in our endeavors. Praise the Lord first and praise the Lord always. Let the praise of the Lord never depart from you. In these first words of Jacob to Judah, there is an ultimate fulfillment found in Jesus. It is through him that we offer our own sacrifice of praise to God. In Hebrews chapter 13, we read these words. Therefore, by him, meaning Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now imagine that. Hebrews and elsewhere in the Bible, praise is called a sacrifice. God actually looks at you taking your time to simply say, I praise you, O Lord, as an acceptable sacrifice. Imagine that. In the end, it's all about Jesus. Every word testifies to this. Verse 8 continues, Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. To have one's hand on the neck of their enemies is an expression indicating the conquest of and victory over them. In the book of Job, we read his feelings of defeat before God who afflicted him. In his discourse, he uses the same terminology. Here's what he says. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He has also taken me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. This prophecy by Jacob is exactingly fulfilled in the Psalms. In Psalm 18, we read this right from the hand of David. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. 
You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You you have also given me the necks of my enemies, so that I destroyed those who hated me. In this is more than just a literal fulfillment by David, though, but it is found in Christ, the ultimate king of the Jews. He has conquered not only the physical enemies of God's people, but all the spiritual ones as well. In him, sin is defeated, Satan is destroyed, and death is conquered. This is what is intended in these words. Verse 8 continues, Your father's children shall bow down before you. Once again, Jacob makes a prophecy that one would think he would have bestowed upon Joseph. In Genesis 37, we we read these words. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. Jacob's words, though, are directed by the Spirit of God and not the knowledge that he already possessed and that he leaned on. Reuben, if you remember in last week's sermon, he was called the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, but he was told that he would no longer excel. Now that honor is transferred to Judah. Jacob's sons would bow down before him. After God selected David, who was from Judah, to replace Saul as the king of Israel, the kingly line continued on through him all the way to Jesus Christ. And it is to Jesus, as Paul records in Philippians chapter 2, that this honor ultimately belongs. Here's what it says. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee includes the knee of every descendant of every brother of Judah. No person is exempted from the honor which will be bestowed upon Jesus Christ. It was fitting for him, our Lord Jesus, for whom are all things and by whom they are as well, in bringing many sons to glory, even us, as the precious words of Scripture do tell, to make the captain of our salvation perfect through sufferings his great tribulation. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified too are all one. In his death, each of us dies, a marvel in how his children he does accrue. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers, you and me too, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. Jacob now assigns a striking metaphor to Judah, which will continue until the very last book of the Bible. We saw it in our Bible study in Revelation this morning, that of a lion. He begins with calling him a lion's whelp. This is a young lion. It's one of just a little bit of power. At this point in history, Judah is just one among his brothers. He has no seeming advantage over them. However, as a lion, he will act and as a lion, he will grow. He begins like all cats do, feisty and full of activity. And yet cats will follow their own course not worrying about the surroundings as they explore. Then we've already clearly seen this in Judah. Remember, he left his family and he went down to Adullam and he uh, had a wife and children and then he got in with that situation with Tamar. He's acted like a young lion all at that time. But this is seen in Jesus as well. Very, very little is recorded of Jesus in his youth. But at the age of 12, Luke tells us that Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem after a feast while his family headed back to Nazareth. They didn't realize that he had stayed behind. When they found him, where was he? 
He was in the temple. He was sitting around among the teachers, both listening and asking questions. As a lion would be curious of its surroundings, so Jesus acted in the same manner. There he was in the temple, astonishing his audience with his prowess. Verse 9 continues, From the prey, my son, you have gone up. As the lion matures, what they do is they take hold of their prey and they go up with it, normally to their mountain lairs, and they eat it there. The tribe of Judah eventually matured into a grown lion in its own right. It became the largest of the 12 tribes and was known for its many, many conquests, defeating prey in all directions as they prospered. In Jesus' life, he also matured into a formidable lion. The enemies would gather and he would defeat them, whether they were the enemies of physical afflictions, demons, the leaders of Israel, or even the devil. He would easily overcome them by standing on what? He'd stand on the word of God and he'd overcome all of his adversaries. And that, I got to tell you what, is exactly what each one of us needs to do right here. Stand on the word of God. Just today, I had one of my old bosses from the military. He was a major at the time. And, uh, uh, you know, I had a great deal of respect for him in the military, but he's very left-leaning. And I posted something to another friend's wall and uh, he came back and he attacked me over it. And he said that... uh, a minister shouldn't be talking about political issues. And he took a, a precept from the Bible out of context and he cited it to me, saying, what kind of a preacher are you? And, uh, you know, I, I, I could only tell him, you're taking that out of context. And unless you take this book in the proper context, it has no meaning at all. And that's what Jesus did. He always cited scripture. It didn't matter what issue he was talking about. Always cited scripture. And he always did it in context. So this is the way of the world. People want you to be silenced. And so what do they do? They say, judge not lest ye be judged in an attempt to get you to completely shut up and not speak on any issue when they don't even believe the words of the Bible. And now how are you going to refute that? So it just happened. It just happened that today's devotional, which I do a devotional every single day of my life and I post it on the Superior website and on Facebook. Today's happened to be on 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And it was Paul explaining how we are to judge within the church. It's not saying don't judge. It's saying exactly how we are to judge. And so I did the entire devotional, about a page and a half long, on that precept. And I posted it on my wall on Facebook. Now, if he reads it, he'll understand how misguided he was and what he said to me. If he doesn't read it, which he probably won't, because most people, they want to read the little prayer at the end of the devotional, and they don't want to read the devotional. But if he does, he will understand exactly why I said what I did to him in that particular post. You know, I just, I don't want to have animosity with people, but I want them to understand that this is our priority right here. And Jesus felt that way. This was his priority, is the word of God. Verse 9 continues, he bows down. He lies down as a lion. The symbolism here is of a lion that crouches in a very satisfied way over his prey. He has no worries about it being taken from him as he sits there and he devours it. Eventually, he's satisfied with his victory and he's filled with the meal, and he enjoys rest and repose while he lies down, maybe on a big bag of bones sitting there. He's at peace, and he has no fears at all. At the same time, his enemies are vexed by him. They're always on the alert should he raise himself up and go back on the prowl. As a full and mature lion, satisfied with the catching of his prey, Judah found itself in exactly this position as well. In 1 Kings chapter 4, we read this about the state of affairs in Judah. It says, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely with each man under his vine and his fig tree, as far as Dan, as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. So you get the symbolism exactly fulfilled in Judah. Then this is the state of the affairs for the Lord too. 
after his victory over his enemies, Hebrews 1 says that Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's there. He's in a contented state, which defines the completion of his work on our behalf. But a lion in such a state is still a lion. Christ is never inattentive to his surroundings, as verse 9 continues. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The word for lion here is an entirely different one than what was said just a moment ago. This lion is a fully mature lion, maybe even a lioness, which is more fierce than the male, resenting angrily when it's disturbed from its rest. A lioness is also, guess what? The caretaker of the cubs and will defend them with ferocity. When Judah had finally subdued her enemies and the people were at rest, the other nations sought peace with them. Many treaties were made in an attempt to pacify them and to stay their desire to go and conquer them as well. In Ezra 4, verse 20, in a letter from King Artaxerxes, the following is noted about Judah. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have reigned over all the region beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. Sounds exactly like the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy. In Isaiah 31, this same terminology that Jacob now uses is applied to the Lord. Here's what it says. For thus, says the, for thus the Lord has spoken to me, as a lion roars and a young lion over its prey, when a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion and for its hill. The Lord even now is reposing in majesty, but someday he will rise from that position. After the church age, Israel will again be at the center of his focus. And like a lion in defense of her cubs, he will be pre prepared to defend his children. Many verses scattered throughout the Bible reflect this metaphor of the lion. And so I want to take a moment and I want to evaluate the Lord, our great lion, either directly called a lion or using the symbolism of one rising up as one. He is the defender of Israel and the protector of his people. In Isaiah chapter 28, the Lord is said to rise up and break out in his anger. Here's what that says. For the bed is too short to stretch out on, and the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act his unusual act. Now therefore do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. That's the Lord, the lion coming to defend Israel. In Hosea 5, the Lord is likened to a lion to fight against his own people when they depart from him. Listen to this. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb, Yet he cannot cure you, nor heal you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place, till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction they will earnestly seek me. And however... In Hosea chapter 11, the Lord is likened to a lion who will roar for his people, regathering them to the land of Israel. Here's what it says. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. Then his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, 
like a dove from the land of Assyria, and I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. And in Joel chapter 3, speaking of the tribulation period, which is future to us now, we get a hint as to the ferocity of the Lord that says the Lord will also roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. A lion guarding its cubs. And finally, we see that the Lord, Jehovah of the Old Testament, is the Lord Jesus revealed in the new. The lion of the tribe of Judah is given the scroll to open in Revelation chapter 5. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Jacob is prophesied over Judah in words which point directly to the Messiah. Time and again, his prophecies have echoed throughout history and have alighted on the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is our Lord Jesus. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion at that time. When he roars, as the Bible does record, then his sons shall come to a land sublime. They shall come trembling from Egypt like a bird and from the land of Assyria like a dove. And he will let them dwell in their houses because he is the covenant-keeping God of love. Our second thought today, until Shiloh comes, this is verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is the symbol of rule and authority. This was prophesied by Jacob as ultimately going to Judah and staying right there. Judah would become the predominant tribe and the ruling tribe. Eventually, the term Judah became synonymous with Israel. To Judah was given the rule, and the acknowledgement of that rule is in the scepter. Verse 10 continues, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Most modern versions here say ruler's staff instead of lawgiver. The idea is that the ruler would rest his staff between his feet while he's sitting on his throne. The older versions saying lawgiver implies that of a line of lawgivers would descend from Judah. The symbolism of procreation is what's being intended when it says between his feet. In the end, they have exactly the same meaning. The scepter is the symbol of rule. And so whether it is a person or a thing that's being spoken of, the idea of rule is what's being conveyed. This rule would continue on unabated in Judah until a very specific point in time, which is the continuation of verse 10, until Shiloh comes. The word Shiloh is understood by almost every scholar, Jewish and Christian alike, to be speaking of the coming Messiah. The exact meaning of this word Shiloh is debated, and it could even be a play on a couple of words. It is from the same root word as the word Shalah, which means peace. But it may be a play on words which are found in a verse in Ezekiel chapter 21. I'll tell you when I get to that word. Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he who, he comes whose right, that word, it is, and I will give it to him. Shiloh then would mean that which belongs to him. It is the right to rule which is mentioned in the scepter and in the lawgiver. And so if it's a pun, then it is speaking both of that word shalah, prince of peace, which is mentioned in Isaiah 9, verse 6, which we say every Christmas is the prince of peace, and also of the true lawgiver mentioned in Isaiah chapter 33, which says these words, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. 
he will save us. And so a dual meaning is probable. Both speak of Christ as the Lord. And we will see this in Paul's writings. In Ephesians chapter 2, he calls Christ our peace. And in Galatians 3, he says this about Jesus and the law. He says, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Judah was the lawgiver until the true lawgiver came from Judah. Verse 10 continues, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. This is speaking of Shiloh, not Judah. However, because Jesus descends from Judah, it in essence still applies to both of them as well. All right, it's just in a more splendid form when being applied to Shiloh, who is Jesus. It is Christ Jesus of the tribe of Judah to whom the obedience of the people will come. Everything so far has pointed to the work of God in Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus. Our third thought, a very, very sobering thought, the blood of grapes. This is verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, binding his donkey to the vine. In the land of Judah, vines were more than in great abundance, as they are again today, so much so that a donkey could be tied to them almost anywhere. This then shows the immense productivity of the fruitfulness of the land where Judah would dwell. Verse 11 continues, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. The choice vine is literally the vine of Sorek. It has a purple berry without any seeds, and it's very highly valued. And yet, it would be so common that the donkey's colt would be tied to it. Think of that. What's a donkey going to do when you tie him to a vine? He's going to eat the grapes, and he's going to tear the vine apart. It doesn't matter because it's so abundant there. This choice vine, a little colt is tied to it. As these words are given by the Spirit through Jacob, it asks us to look at what their ultimate fulfillment is. The same terms for donkey and donkey's colt are used in Zechariah 9, verse 9, both in that one verse when speaking of the coming Messiah. Here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, every word that Jacob is saying is ultimately pointing to Christ. But even the vine has a fulfillment in him. In John 15, Jesus calls himself the true vine. Under the law, donkeys are what? They're considered unclean animals, and thus they represent the Gentiles, who are impure and ignorant of spiritual matters, and yet we are tied to the true vine, Jesus, by faith. Verse 11 continues, He washed his garments in wine. In the land of Judah, wine would be so common that it could be used like, you know, for any ordinary purpose, even washing clothes. That's how common wine would be. Verse 11 continues, in his clothes in the blood of grapes. Next, Jacob prophesies that he would wash his clothes in the blood of grapes. In this seemingly odd parallel thought, there is again a prophetic fulfillment. In Jesus, we have both a kinsman redeemer and an avenger of blood. Both terms come from the same Hebrew word, goel. You have to know the context of what's being said to know if it's speaking of a kinsman redeemer or an avenger of blood. As our kinsman redeemer, guess what Christ did? He put on garments of flesh and he became like us in his human nature. And he, in fact, did wash his clothes, his flesh. 
in his own blood, becoming entirely red in his apparel from head to foot. And he did this in order to redeem us. His bloody garment became our righteousness. And Christ is also the avenger of blood. In Isaiah 63, we see his work as the avenger of his people. Here's what it says there. Who is this who comes from Edom? Now think of this prophecy that Jacob said over Judah. And he washed his garments in, the, in blood. How do you say it? He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Well, we've seen his, his garments in wine, his own blood. Now listen to what he does as the avenger of blood. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? Your garments like one who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments, and I have stained all my robes. In his return at the end of the tribulation period, we see the fulfillment of this verse from Isaiah in Jesus. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. If you understand the symbolism, every harvest in Israel symbolizes something. You have the barley, you have the wheat, you've got the grape harvest. The grape harvest is the harvest of judgment. When he hung on that cross, your sin and mine was judged in him. And that's why Judah prophesied this over, or Jacob prophesied this over Judah. And then he comes in judgment for those who have rejected the first judgment. And he tramples out the winepress of, the, of God Almighty. With his, with his own feet and the blood is spattered as the NIV says all over his garments in his fury and in his rage you've rejected what I did for you and now I am rejecting you it's an amazing set of verses right there it's, it's simply astonishing the Lord is gracious and he is merciful but he is also just and he is righteous and he will come to judge the people of the world in his return at the end of the tribulation period we know that that is what's coming, because that's what we saw in the book of Revelation. Again, as with each set of parallel thoughts, the ultimate fulfillment is found in the majestic work of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, his eyes are darker than wine. The word darker here is only used this one time in the entire Bible. And so nobody really knows how to translate it properly. Some say sparkling, some say beautiful, some say bright, some say red. The idea here is of richness of the eye from enjoying the pleasures of life given by God. It is a state of health and contentment. Verse 12 finishes with these words, and his teeth whiter than milk. Again, teeth which are whiter than milk implies health and strength. Such teeth belong to the prosperous and the well-fed, not on the poor or underfed. There's a bountiful blessing pronounced upon Judah in this parallel description. And again, this points to the work of the Messiah. In him, there is eternal health, abundance, wholeness, and blessing. In Christ, there is the free enjoyment of the good things of life, which well up into everlasting contentment. Isaiah speaks of this using the same elements, wine and milk. Here's what he says from Isaiah chapter 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. 
the sure mercies of David. In the witness of the stars that God set in place in heaven, Judah is represented by the sign Leo, the strong lion. In the heaven, between Leo's feet, or actually in the heavens, Leo's feet are over the head of Hydra, the great serpent, as if he's descending on it to crush it. It's a celestial battle which is put into the sky, which is reminiscent of the Messiah crushing the serpent's head, as seen in this depiction. And between the feet of Leo is the star Regulus, which means regal or kingship. In verse 10, it said that the scepter would not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. In an amazing heavenly display, which occurred on 17 February 2 BC, the moon was positioned between Jupiter and Regulus. At 5 a.m., looking at the western horizon, the moon would have been covering up the star Regulus with the lower one-fifth of its diameter. Then, 82 days later, on May 8th and 9th, the same conjunction occurred again. This time, the moon covered up Regulus by the top one-fifth of its diameter. In essence, the lawgiver departed from between the feet of Leo. Thus, it was a heavenly sign that the Messiah had arrived. Again, as in last week's blessing upon Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, everything points ultimately to Jesus Christ, even to the point that the stars themselves witness to his glory. It is all about Jesus Christ because it is he who reveals the unseen Father to us. In him, we see the heart of God who longs to have a relationship with us, but it is not possible without Jesus. Only he can restore this relationship that was broken between God and man so long ago. So once again, I'd like to ask you to allow me to explain to you how you yourself can become a son of God by faith in Christ. It's very simple. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. If you can't come to that resolution in your own mind that you've done something wrong, then I can't help you until you do. But once you realize that you have sinned, then you can come to the next conclusion, which is that I can't go back and undo my sin. I'm going this way in time, and I can't go back and take it back. And that one sin, according to the Bible, separates you eternally from God because he's infinite and we're finite. And so Jesus Christ came to undo that. The wages of sin is death. We die because of the sin in us. But Jesus Christ gave his life in exchange for ours. He died on the cross. His righteousness is then imputed to us. And our sin was put on his cross. And he died to take away our sin. And he came out of the grave. He came out of the grave. And because he did, we can have the full assurance that we are saved through his precious blood. Paul says, all that call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all you have to do. I can't save myself. I can't go back and undo what I've done. Christ offers this in my place. I want to be on his cross with him. I don't want to be stomped on him in the judgment at the end. That's the difference. And you see this in our sermon today. Those precious words of Jacob upon his son Judah, all pointing to Jesus because God loves us enough to send his spirit upon that man during his dying breaths to let us know that I'm going to do something marvelous in the world just for you. So call on Jesus and be reconciled to God through his shed blood. Our closing verse today comes from Joel chapter 3. A little bit about Judah here. And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine. The hills shall flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A valley shall flow from the house of the Lord and water 
the Valley of Acacias. Beautiful words of something coming in our future. Next week is Genesis 49, verses 13 through 18. The blessing upon Zebulun, Issachar, and Dan. That'll be our 125th Genesis sermon, and I assure you that we'll find Jesus in at least one of those verses and probably all of them. I'd like to say to you, as I do each week, that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you, and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you, all right? Now we get a poem for you today, as I always do, and as I have not change the blessing of any of the people during uh, the book of Genesis. I'm also not going to change the blessing of Jacob upon Judah. Everything else will be in poem format. This is called the praise of his brothers. When Jacob blessed Judah, his son, he made him ruler over the tribes of Israel. A praise among his brothers, as his prophetic words did foretell. But these words also affect each of us. His blessing upon Judah was spoken thus. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Like all of the Bible, the words point to Jesus as the Spirit of God carried Jacob along, giving out clues of the coming Messiah to us, words which now fill our heart with song. In Christ, we see the beauty of the plan of God, and in Christ, we see his hand upon the ages. When in this difficult world we trod, we can contemplate the beauty revealed in the Bible's pages. There we find God's written and precious word recorded to give us hope, joy, and strength. It is truly a precious, perfect sword given to carry us through life's length. Thank you, O God, for your superior word, this gift which reveals Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you allowed to happen in human time and existence, which is written in the stars above us to show us the marvel and the wonder and the splendor of your heart, how you love us enough to do these things. I just, I I cannot believe it. Lord, forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of our iniquities, purge us and make us vessels that are acceptable and useful to you. Help us throughout the week ahead to just praise you in all ways and at all times, just as Judah went first in all things, may the praise of you be on the lips of each person here and every person that listens on YouTube. May your praise never cease from our lips. Help us to do this. Help us to give you the honor that you are due. And when we get to that heavenly home that's promised for us and we see you in all of your shining splendor, surely the praises will never, never end. We love you. We praise you. Please do take care of each person here. Bless them in their hearts. Bless them in their souls. Bring them safely back again next week for another exciting adventure into your precious word. And we want to give you honor and glory, and we want to do so in the name of Jesus. All hail the name of Jesus. Amen.
We get the instructions for the Lord's Supper from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there in those uh, verses, Paul wrote this. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over that bread by saying these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe. He brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he also took the cup, saying, A blessing over it. He would have said these words Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu, Olam, Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Remember those verses from today. The judgment has to go somewhere. It's either going to go to Christ on the cross, which we're celebrating here, or it's going to go to you. God has no other alternative for the people he created. There's no second path into heaven. There's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. And remember what he went through for us as you come forward. Please. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the chance to come and meet at this table. We thank you that it's seen all the way through the Bible. 
the coming judgment on sin. We thank you that it was judged in Christ on our behalf, and we would pray for any person that is out there that we come in contact with in the week ahead that has never received this, that they would contemplate it, take it in, take it to heart, and accept it so that they won't receive the second judgment, the avenger of blood, who will come someday, some terrifying day. Help us to be proper stewards of this message of Jesus Christ and to get this word out while there is time. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you and we praise you. And we do so in your name. Amen.